0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest this week is an old friend named Dana Sawyer. I say old friend because we met in about 1971 or something, right, when uh, I was teaching Transcendental Meditation in Connecticut and I came to Dana's college in Danbury, Western Connecticut State College I think it was called, That's and, right. and uh, instructed Dana and uh, we have been in touch on and off ever since. and. Dana has moved on to do all sorts of interesting things. Um, I'll read his uh, bio or part of it from his Wikipedia page here, and um, then maybe Dana can fill in some gaps of anything that I have left out or whatever. Um, Dana is a full-time professor of religion and philosophy at the Maine College of Art and is an adjunct professor of Asian religions at the Bangor Theological Seminary. He's the author, author of numerous published papers and books, including Aldous Huxley, a biography, which Laura Huxley, who's that, his daughter or his wife?
1: His wife, his second wife.
0: Okay, which Laura Huxley described as out of all the biographies written about Aldous, this is the only one he would have actually liked. <laughs> um, Dana has been involved in fundraising activities for the Siddhartha School project in uh, Stock Ladakh, North India for more than ten years and is currently Vice President of the Board of Trustees. This project has resulted in the construction of an elementary and middle school for underprivileged Buddhist children that has been visited twice by the Dalai Lama, who holds it as a model for blending traditional and Western educational ideals. Much of his work for this project has involved translating uh, at lectures for and teaching with the school's founder, Gensei Labzang Setan, I'm sure I pronounced. Setan, who is currently the abbot uh, of the Panchen Lama's monastery in Mysore, India. Uh, Sawyer's interest in the phenomenon of neo-Hindu and Buddhist groups in America led him to become a popular lecturer on topics of interest to these groups. He has taught at the Kripalu Center in Lenox, Massachusetts, the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies in Barry, Massachusetts, Bar- Barry or Bar. Barry. Barry. Um, The Vedanta Society of Southern California, the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California and other such venues. This work has also brought him into contact with several interesting and important figures in this field including Stanislav Graf, Andrew Harvey, Huston Smith, Laura Huxley, uh, Stephen Cope and Alex Gray. Sir has been to India 11 times, is it it still 11 or more now?
1: Twelve now. Twelve
0: now. Um, And I believe you speak fluent Hindi, don't you? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Jiha, (laughs) Kionnehi. Cello, cello. (laughs) Oh, good. That's the most important word to know. That's the only one I know. Most recently,
0: while on sabbatical during the winter and spring of 2005, and has traveled extensively throughout the subcontinent in Nepal, Pakistan, Sikkim, Thailand, Cambodia, Hong Kong, and Japan. Um, And then there's more, and it goes on. But I think that gives you a taste of what Dana's been up to. And if you want, I'll read the last bit if you think it's important. you Do you?
1: Oh, I, I don't even know what it says, uh, but... It's, it's about your uh, academic
0: work in, in various oh, no, no. universities and things here and there. Oh, no, and then no. you've written a bunch of uh, publications and books and won some awards I, and so on and so forth.
1: That's right. Good enough. See what, you, see what you started when you gave me that mantra.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you would have been a ditch digger otherwise.
1: Oh, yeah, probably. <laughs>
0: Not that there's anything wrong with that.
1: No more noble work, maybe. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so... I think we're going to cover a wide range of uh, topics tonight, Dana and I, and um, you know, when we were talking a, a week or two ago, Dana said that you know, he felt it would be sort of boring to just talk about his subjective experience. It would be just sort of telling a story that you know, has been told a number of times on this show, um, although you know, my response was that perhaps when we cover certain points, Maybe something in, in your subjective development as it has occurred over the years would help to um, you know illumine those points or give credence to why you're making a certain point <clears throat> sure um, and uh, I've been to, to start the interview actually I, I've been reading a, a book by Elaine Pagel's lately entitled Beyond Belief um, mm. which is about early Christianity and as I, as I was reading it I, I started to formulate what I'd like to ask as the first question and okay. uh, and it's going to be more of a statement than a question and I'll try to ask it as concisely as possible and then let you run with it. Um, okay. <laughs> <Is> <laughs> not that <me> it's, <laughs> no, I'm not claiming that you're an expert on on uh, early Christianity but as, as I read the book um, I'm struck by uh how much of human endeavor um, revolves around the effort to alter our subjective experience and uh, perhaps also squabbles about that subjective experience if it can't properly be verified uh, you know and, and is left to a, a matter of belief or faith and in fact in, in early Christianity a great deal of this went on um, you know the, the early, Church was trying to establish itself, and meanwhile, it was you know there were terrible persecutions taking place, torture and murder of early Christians, and and then they began squabbling among themselves over various interpretations of what you know Christ actually taught, and so on, and. Um, there was this guy named uh, what was it, Iranaeus Ar- or not Ironius, uh, That was it. Um, who uh, and there was this sort of tussle be- between uh, kind of a good Freudian slip there. There was this tussle between those who sort of wanted to rely more on personal experience and you know actually verifying for oneself what Christ and other religious uh, scriptures were saying, and those and those represented by Irenaeus who you know tried to objectify the whole thing more and say, well, you know personal experience is very misleading and suspect and heretical and and we really should just you know codify this this group of this this doctrine and then stick to it and banish everything else and that he pretty much won out and that's how the New Testament was formed and especially the gospels and right. uh, expanding right. this notion i mean then look what's happened over the last couple thousand years I mean hundreds of millions of people have been Murdered in various ways and wars and whatnot, basically over the notion that you know my God is better than your God, even though neither one of us can you know verify the existence of our respective gods. But I'm going to kill you anyway, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah. you know mine's better than yours. Um, and then taking it one step further, and then I'll, I'll let you run with it. Um, another major way in which we tried to, in, in which we put a lot of effort into subjective experience is the whole realm of drugs and, and, you know, both legal and illegal and, you know, what we, all that we do and the billions of dollars we spend in the civil war taking place in Mexico and, and, you know, and all that over the burning human desire, apparently, to alter our perspective, you know, through whatever means, to to Mm. change the way we see the world. Um, And, you know, so you can see that this is a little bit of a disjointed question, but I think the two aspects are related. There's just been a huge drama throughout human history over subtler realities, different realities, um, you know, not accepting that the way we ordinarily see the world is all there is to it and wanting to change it somehow. Mm, mm. So, what do you say to all that?
1: That's a lot. <laughs> uh, so many, so many ideas uh, crowd into my mind. Uh, first of all, you know, human beings have such a rage for certainty, mm. and they have such a rage for certainty because they feel so uncertain. Mm. And that's you know what the historical record of all cultures show. And in that uncertainty, uh, if people feel like they're getting... Uh, a message they can feel very strongly about and very certain about, then they will sometimes run with it, even if it doesn't serve them in the long purpose of life. Uh, There's that great Sufi story about God and uh, Satan are walking down the road, and uh, God bends over and he picks something up out of the ditch and he puts it in his robe. And they keep walking, and after a while Satan says, oh, uh, you know, by the way, what was that? And God says, uh, that was the truth. And so Satan says, oh, give it to me. I'll organize it for you. <laughs> and and if you think about in the early Christian church, there was such a movement among certain groups, like the Pauline Christians in particular, as opposed to the Gnostics, who Pagels writes about much more, who, as you say, they wanted to objectify it. Okay, how can we create a kind of flow chart of certainty. And so they created this very strict uh, apostolic succession, like a guru lineage, and they codified the text in the second century of their version of the Bible. And uh, that was their way of creating certainty. But on on the level of the Gnostic Christians, they were actually trying to embrace the mystery Mm -hmm. rather than the certainty they were really functioning much more out of a world that you and I are familiar with and i'm sure lots of your listeners which is uh, a longing for something that well i know who i am you know i'm rick or i'm dana and i have this job and i seem to be a male and i do this and that but that isn't all that i am and i can tell i know for sure on some level there's something some little man behind a curtain or some giant infinite void just out of reach And uh, the Gnostics, you know, from that uh, Greek word gnosis, knowledge, that's the knowledge they wanted. They didn't want certainty. They didn't want it cut and dried on a piece of paper. They were trying to embrace that much more profound level of mystery. Now, and I'm almost done with this comment, but when we are, um, you know, trying to reach out for the transcendent, when we're trying to reach out for that mystery, Uh, inside of the perennial philosophy, and that's really my tradition, the tradition of no tradition or all traditions, however you like to have it. Uh, You know, Aldous Huxley says people will unfortunately uh, do drugs, heavy drugs, uh, or sex or porno or something like that, because they don't even realize they're, they're searching for transcendence. They're searching for wholeness but uh and they do get themselves you know outside of their usual consciousness but then he would say the problem is that all the transcendence rather than being vertical toward the sacred is horizontal mm. you, you you displaced yourself for a while but there was no growth and you come back to uh spinning your wheels you know mm-hmm. and uh and i think there's there's some sense to that in my experience
0: yeah i I had that realization the last time I took LSD. I was sitting there reading a Zen book, and you know, really kind of getting impressed with how serious these Zen guys were, and contrasting that with the way my life was going. And among other things, I had the realization that there's only one way out of this situation, and that is uh, upward, to use a metaphor. But in other words, you can't blot it out, you you know, you can't blot out the reality and hope to actually escape because you're only going to have to face it again, perhaps even more, uh, you know, painfully. And uh, so I I just had this sense that, well, evolution, you know, getting Hmm. more and more clear, more and more, uh, you know, not trying to hide in any way, but sort of uncovering deeper and deeper realities, that would be the way to actual happiness and, you know, freedom.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, saying that uh in a slight disagreement with your uh, point, you know, I'm writing this uh, biography of Houston Smith right now. Mm-hmm. And Houston uh was very close with Timothy Leary and Ram Dass when Ram Dass was uh, still Richard Alpert at Harvard. Mm-hmm. And uh Houston was experimenting with them uh with psychedelics. And uh, he has still to this day very uh, much respect for psychedelics. His viewpoint, and I tend to agree with it, uh, is that it's a tool, and it's a tool that you know you can stick your axe in your foot, or you can cut a tree down and split your firewood. And uh, you know his viewpoint is to say that psychedelics are unequivocally a tool that can't be used for consciousness expansion is to dismiss uh, hundreds of traditional religions that have existed on the planet, including lots of Native American religions, especially in South America. So, you know, he would just want to add that hiccup at the end that um, maybe the way they're often used in American culture or, uh, you know, as a way of sort of getting yourself blown away Mm -hmm. instead of being set inside of a cultural milieu where, uh, there are lots of reference points on how to channel that experience in a more positive yeah. direction. You know, something oh, I like.
0: totally agree. I mean, I I wasn't it, in my own case. It it was a, a real eye opener the first time I did psychedelics. You know, I realized, holy mackerel! You know, there is a whole you know subtle world here that I didn't realize existed, and and every sure. everything depends on how you perceive the world. It's not just what you how you rearrange the objects out there. It's how you. Shift your whole orientation to the world is what is important. But after a year of doing that, you know, I was getting to the point where I'd pretty well fried my brain, and you know, I realized it wasn't getting me anywhere to continue in in this direction, and I needed to sort of do something more wholesome to sure to move on. Yeah, Alan
1: Alan Watts said something like, uh, "When you get the message, hang up the phone or right. something Good like point. that." <laughs> right. You know, once you. Once yeah. you get what that's about and that there is a world beyond your everyday consciousness, then yeah. move on. There's better tools. Or, right. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Now it's, let's uh, talk about certainty for a second since you brought it up a minute ago. Um, it's it's interesting because when I first found out about enlightenment, I felt like that was something that was going to give me certainty. You know, I was going to have sort of a rock-solid grip on reality, know anything I wanted to know with Certainty, no more equivocation. You know, uh, you know this whole academic thing that there are no absolutes. It's all you know, everyone's perspective is as good as anybody else's. I didn't like that at all, and I, and I felt like I, you know I'm going to get beyond all that and really be able to sort of come down with absolute precision on any topic or subject or bit of knowledge in the world. How'd that work uh, out? Uh, <laughs> not at all, actually. But uh, that's okay. Um, you know, I you know now I sort of like you know. There's a saying in the Bible which I've quoted a few times in these interviews, which is that um, the foxes have their holes and the birds have their nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Mm. And um, to me, that means that there—that you know, if if you're really sort of uh, expanded or unbounded or awake or whatever you want to call it. Um, you can't find solace or certainty or security in a conceptual cubbyhole of any kind. Uh, in fact, any concept that somebody presents to you, you can sort of see the truth in that and then also see the truth in the polar opposite of it. And even though those two might be at each other's throats, you can, you can kind of see how they're both, it's like the cert's paradox, you know, it's both a candy mint and a breath mint.
1: <laughs> the search paradox. That. that's good. Yeah. yeah, and teachers like
0: Byron Katie are, are are so effective because they're really good at prying people loose from their certainty. You know, do you know that's true? Are you absolutely sure that's true? You know, where would you be if that wasn't true? You know, <laughs>
1: right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that's uh, you know, you raise so many interesting points there. And one of them that comes to my mind is that whatever. Uh, subjective experience we're having, Uh, whatever experience we're having, has got to be set inside of a particular interpretation. And people will, uh, what, remember Marshy's story about the man wearing the diamond, heavy diamond necklace around his neck and saying that, the guy was denigrating the experience until somebody said, "Wow, you're the richest man on the planet. That's this giant diamond." Yeah, he thought it was and, weighing him uh, down. That's right, and uh, you know, I think that's true of life in general. I think that very often, we take the fact that life can, confronts us as a you know Rochard ink blot, as uh, almost like a man has no place to put his head down, but that there's such wonderful opportunity in that. Um, you know, if the truth could be written on a piece of paper and put in front of you and you could know it like somebody's phone number, then I uh, wouldn't have all these books behind me and you wouldn't have all those books behind you, right? Yeah. It's the, it's the, it's the, uh, I don't, you, you, you know, search. have more books than I do. <laughs> search, well, you know, <laughs> occupational hazard, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, that it's not so much a, a search thing as a flowering thing for me now. I almost mm-hmm. sort of... Like the perpetual intellectual confusion, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm um, sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, convictionally impaired. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> when, it good. Comes, when it comes to like theories about it, mm-hmm. you know whether it is life or, or uh, some profound experience that you have, and how do you explain it and appropriate it? I think a lot of times poets come closer, and you know someone like Rumi nails it down a lot more than somebody. Uh, like Dana Sawyer writing books, you know, that don't really mm. get at it, you know.
0: I heard uh, Nisargadatta quoted recently as having said that the de- that a good measure of enlightenment is the degree to which you're comfortable with paradox and ambiguity.
1: I mm. Mm. Uh, See, I think that's brilliant. I really do. Mm. You know, talking with Houston Smith, who's 91 now, doing these interviews for the biography, uh, he has an incredible, incredible presence, Rick. Hmm. Uh, my wife, when he calls me, she says God's on the phone. <laughs> and uh, I was talking with Michael Murphy, uh, the guy that one of the two founders of the Eslin Institute. Uh-huh. And uh, Michael said, "Yeah, you know, Dana Eslin, Over all these years, we've only had about five presenters that really glow in the dark, mm. and one of them is Houston Smith." Cool. And, and at the same moment, Houston is very much in this place of, um, you know, I don't want to call it uncertainty. It's not really that. It's kind of a delicious embrace of mystery. Mm-hmm. That's how I would characterize it.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's worth dwelling on this certainty and uncertainty point for a bit more because, I mean, and if you think of it as I, you know, I alluded earlier to all the wars and the, the killing that's taking place in the name village religion that wouldn't have happened if people hadn't been so cocksure of their particular perspective. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, you have to be pretty darn sure of your of your your rightness to fly an airplane into a building. Uh, <laughs> I saw a cartoon the other day. Uh, the airplane was about to hit the, the World Trade Center, and there's a voice in the cockpit saying, Wait a minute, what if there's some Korans in there? <laughs> and the other guy said, What do we care? <laughs>
1: <laughs> they wouldn't know, right? Uh, you know, uh, the, the thing with you, there was a philosopher in the 19th century named, named Edmund Husserl. Of Edmund Husserl, and he was a primary influence on uh, Martin Heidegger, another philosopher, and he was also a primary influence on Freud, so he had a really broad influence. But he was really the first person to clinically prove that perception is not a passive process, mm-hmm. that we uh, are constantly selecting what to put our attention on. So, you know, I'm, I'm selecting to pay attention to your voice, and you're selecting to pay attention to mine." And during this whole conversation there's been the sensation of our bodies sitting in the chairs, but are we aware of those sensations? Subliminally, we,
0: maybe.
1: It's subliminally, maybe, maybe, excuse me. It's <laughs> uh, been a long day of teaching. Yeah. And um, yet what he was pointing out is that we don't realize that as we select on a regular basis, And as we grow and we're taught what to select, you know when you're driving, if you took driver's ed, you learn to select the road. Mm -hmm. Right? You're driving, select the road. Yeah, the kids are beautiful out on the street, but look back at the road very soon.
0: Yeah.
1: And so we become very robotic in our actions, Mm -hmm. and we become robotic in our our selection preferences of what we put our attention on, Mm -hmm. and we become robotic in how we interpret what we select. Mm So I see a dog, and I know what a dog is. I don't have to see it again. There's no Zen moment right. in that. There's no richness. And I remember years ago uh, at the University of Hawaii, which I recommend, You know, even if you don't like school. It was great. <laughs> especially <laughs> great if you don't like school. Yeah, especially if you don't <laughs> like school. Um, a Zen teacher named Robert Aitken, who some of your uh, listeners may know, he came in and spoke in one of my classes. and. Um, in front of him was a kind of a, a a book sort of in the shape of a magazine, if you can see what I'm saying, a kind of big coffee table book, not too heavy, though. And he held it up to the class and he said, what is this? And somebody said, you know, a book. And uh, he waved it in front of his face like this, and he said, no, it's a fan.
0: Mm. Ah.
1: And then he said, uh, oh, by the way, what is this? And somebody said, um, you know, a book fan. <laughs> And he said, uh, no, and he threw it on a stack of papers, and he said, it's a paperweight. Mm. And so he picked it up again, and he said, what is this? And somebody said, a book fan paperweight? (laughs) And he opened it up, and he put it on his head, and he said, no, it's a rain hat, because Uh it was raining that day in Manoa Valley, and lots of people had run in with books over their head. Mm. And he had seen that. Uh And this went on for ten minutes. Wow. And then finally he said, oh, by the way, what is this? And somebody said, I don't have any idea what that is. Uh And he said, now we're getting somewhere. (laughs) Now we're getting somewhere. Now to tie tie Husserl into Aiken, Husserl uh, was saying that because we become such creatures of habit and we run on automatic all the time, we don't revisit the mystery of the world enough. Mm. And what happens is we become so acculturated with our own culture's viewpoint, that we see the world through a lens of concepts and interpretations, hmm. that are blinding us to the fact we're not really seeing the world. We're seeing the world through a glass darkly. Huh. And and I think when people are uh, too too influenced by a philosophical viewpoint, uh, whether it it doesn't know it doesn't really matter what it is, whether it's uh, Islam or Marxism or SCI. Mm-hmm. If that becomes the only way we can interpret our experience and we can't revisit the mystery, then we're, we're in trouble on two levels. One, we can become uh, way too dogmatic to interact with others in a, in a peaceful playground kind of way. And then two, we shut ourselves off from so much beauty mm. and so much uh, nourishment, You know, true nourishment, if the mind could settle down more, then the spirit can loom out more, you know, mm-hmm. loom, loom forward. And I think that's what they miss, is that they don't realize, you know, uh, I don't want to pick on somebody, but I think George Bush didn't realize when he was calling them the evildoers that it's uh, it's a matter of perception and that if he had been born where they were, mm-hmm. he would have had their perspective. If they had been born where he was, they would have his, you know. Yeah. There's a there's a blindness that comes to us when we uh, don't realize that passive that perception isn't passive. I'm, I remember there's there's one more story I want to share quickly. Husserl uh, made some phony uh, playing cards, if I'm remembering this correctly, and he would play cards with a friend of his, and he would say, um, "Oh, you know, Fritz, or you know, this is in Germany presumably, or Switzerland. What is that card? Oh, that's the uh, ace of hearts." Is it? Look at it." Oh, I'm looking right at it. Yeah, it's the ace of hearts. And he said, well, if you look closely, you'll see it's a red ace of spades. Hmm. And the yeah. person would say, oh, there is no red ace of spades. And Husserl says, well, there's one. <laughs> you know? yeah. And just pointing out how the glasses of interpretation can become so glued on our face
0: mm-hmm.
1: that we can't see the world anymore.
0: Hmm. Marsha used to give a lecture in which he said, routine work kills the genius in man." Mm. but then he said well but routine work is necessary because for efficiency you know you have to learn how to do a thing and you have to do it over and over again so he said well uh-huh. the, so- the solution is if you have recourse to unboundedness and then alternate that with your with your work then you can somehow break the uh, confining shackles of of routine uh, you know be unbounded and yet at the same time be focused on on the specific task that you may have to perform repeatedly yeah and uh Kind of pertains to the point you were making. Um,
1: yeah, I like that advice. I'm glad I didn't hear that lecture before I had to memorize the check-in note. <laughs> right,
0: it wasn't part of those. <laughs> but I mean, so what would you say, for instance? I mean, here, I mean, in in the United States these days, uh, commentators are lamenting how polarized we've become. Not, I and mean, we always were, but it's getting more extreme. It seems you know, the Republicans and Democrats can't talk to each other. Republicans have to oppose everything Obama tries to do. You know. Uh, no matter how laudable it may be, uh, there's just absolutely a gridlock uh, because of this sort of fixity of perspective, uh, and that's just one example. I and mean, we could take religious examples and you know specific issues like gun control or abortion or whatever else. There's people get locked into their perspectives. So what is the antidote to that?
1: Well, I think you know, getting out of your own light is really the you know, I think that's the antidote to that. Um,
0: what do you mean by that?
1: Well, you know, uh, getting over that certainty. I mean, you know, we live in troubled times. Everybody's worried about climate change, and if they're not, they should be. Right. And uh, that, whenever you live in times of great uncertainty, like we do, and when you live in times of tremendous cultural change mm-hmm. that we're going through right now. Um, then that's going to create a polarization. There are going to pe- be people who will clutch very, very desperately to the way things were. I think if you look at uh, the Tea Party movement in America today, you're seeing people who want America to stay put. Mm-hmm. They want to stay America, uh, keep America the way it was in their childhood or their parents' childhood. And then you have uh, immigrants who didn't have that childhood, and you've got people who. See America more pluralistically, and America based on Jeffersonian principles of democracy, not necessarily only being a Red Sox fan or, <laughs> or uh, you know, a, a certain view of white Protestant America, and so that creates you know uncertainty and polarization. Uh, but the piece you know that I'm I'm trying to get at, Rick, about getting out of your own light is. Um, you know that uh, there's that great Zen story. There's a great Zen story about uh, uh, an old master Chinese Zen, Chan, and uh, the old master and the young master are going up a trail. I'll try to make this short. And the uh, young they sit down to take a break. And the young master says to the old master, "Oh, you know, since we have got some time on our hands, what is um, heaven like?" And the, uh, excuse me, he says, "What is hell like?" And the old master says, Hell, oh hell, okay, let's see, oh yeah, hell, that's a beautiful garden with lots of fragrant flowers and birds and palm trees and beautiful perfume breezes and a, there's a pavilion with silk curtains and beautiful banquet table and all these wonderful people around the table and and he has to be stopped by the young monk and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're talking about hell, right? And the old monk says, yeah, you know. But the thing is, in hell, you have to eat with chopsticks, and the chopsticks are about four feet long. So, have, so when you pick the food up, your arm isn't long enough to get the food in your mouth, so yeah. you can never eat the food even though you're there. Yeah. And so the young man wow, you know that would be hell. So he says to the old monk, okay, okay, so what about heaven? What would heaven be like? And the old monk says, oh, yeah, heaven, okay. That's the same thing, isn't it? It's a garden, beautiful flowers. Big pavilion, silk curtains, beautiful banquet. All this delicious table, and all these people around. And the young monk says, "I don't get it." And the old monk says, "Well, in heaven, you would remember that you could have fed the people across the table from you." Yeah, right. The Hindus have it's the so, same story.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. There's a story where the gods and the demons, for some reasons, for some reason, had their arms like uh, put on a splint, you know, so they couldn't bend at the elbow. And okay. So they were unable to feed themselves, you know, because they couldn't bend their arm. And as it turned to make this story even shorter, as it turned out, the demons all starved to death because they couldn't figure out how to eat. But the gods fed each other, and mm-hmm. so they they survived.
1: <laughs> and see, you know, are we going to be gods or demons? Right? I mean, that's the piece that uh, yeah. I mean about getting out of our own light. Can we reach across the table? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Stephen Cope down at uh, Kropalu for a few years was doing these East meets East. Uh, workshops for five days, Mm -hmm. and he would have Buddhist scholars come in and Hindu scholars come in, and even in America today you'll often see people will transplant their old allegiances to uh, Hinduism and Buddhism. You know, Stephen uh, is always sort of teasing and laughing that the Episcopalians have kind of cornered the market on Hindu traditions and the Jews have cornered the market on Buddhist traditions. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you might have even heard this expression, Jew booze. I don't know if you've ever heard this.
0: I've heard hidden Jews.
1: Hidden Jews works. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but you know, the point is that uh, will we simply say, oh, you know, I used to be a Christian and you guys were lost, or uh, I'm a Catholic, you're a Protestant, you're lost if you're not inside the right tradition, mm-hmm. or will we not do that? Will we, as we grow and... Uh, are exposed to new traditions, not bring that old habit of uh, dogmatic allegiance to one perspective, to the point where we're not even willing to listen to the teachings of others. Mm. You know, that's that's a real worry, I think.
0: So that gives us one hint at an antidote, which is that you know, if we could somehow expose ourselves to viewpoints other than the one we're already ensconced in, uh, it might help us realize that you know other viewpoints are perhaps as valid as our own, or the way I look at it, I mean I've been guilty of a little dogmatism myself from time to time over the years. Um, And even recently, uh, you know, I've listened to a lot of talks by Neo-Advaita teachers. There's this uh, site called uh, Urban Guru Cafe and they're all sort of (laughs) followers of Sailor Bob Adamson whom you may have heard of, but Neo-Advaita teacher. And, you know, I listen to them with great interest because these people are very articulate and clear and brilliant and, and so on. But I just came away with the feeling like, you know, there's something incomplete. There's something missing. There's this denigration of, of the sort of progressive path-like nature of, of, of you know, there's a tendency to sort of say, just realize that it's all an illusion and, and there's no one home, there, there's no individual self, and you're done, you know, you don't have to meditate, you don't, gurus are all bunk, and so some of them talk that way, and yeah. you know, I was sort of, kind of bemoaning that or, you know, criticizing it and so on, but I've just lately I've been feeling like, you know every perspective is valid every path is valid and you know for some people that might be the perfect teaching right now it might be exactly what they need to hear just mm. as fundamentalist christianity might be exactly what somebody needs to hear at this stage of the game and if they reach a point at which they need to hear something else then they'll get interested in something else but you know mm. there's just there's so many different teachings and teachers and perspectives and and so on and and you know no one of them is the absolute one that everyone should adhere to, uh, they, they're all just f- flowers in a, in a garden of variety and uh, you know just enjoy them all and take what you need and leave the rest.
1: Yeah, that works for me. <laughs> I mean I like uh, yeah, I certainly like the idea that there are multiple paths up the spiritual mountain. I, I certainly, certainly agree with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the only place that we have to worry is when somebody is raising a philosophical perspective, that is implicitly not you know uh, generous that in other words people are being maybe they're getting something out of it but maybe this goes to that uh, horizontal transcendence i was talking about that they get certainty and they get out of the problem they had you know they're mm-hmm. in twelve-step program now and that's certainly better than where they were but if they're sitting down in a place like extremist islam or or extremist uh, Judaism or extremist Christianity, then very often they're really being taught to superglue those uh, filters on their on their face and see the world only from one perspective, oh, yeah. and and maybe even do harm to to others. And then that's uh, you know it's hard for me to accept that as much as uh, what they really need at this point or, or something like that. But certainly you can you can walk away with uh, you know you can you can go to a meeting i think if you uh where am i trying to go with this if you're when i first left the christian church after my teenage years and you know you remember those days in the 60s and everything that was going on mm-hmm. um I couldn't see the inside of a church without being sort of angry and frustrated, and they're behind the curve, and blah blah blah. Yeah. And uh, took me I years
0: re- after I stopped smoking dope to not feel paranoid <laughs> whenever there was a cop following me.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's what we're talking about, right? The pattern ability of a right. human. So, you know, then to be able to go back into a church and hear some beautiful choir music or some beautiful organ music or you know, Gregorian chanting, and really be able to really own that and sit with the, how beautiful it is. Yeah, absolutely. was, you know, wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, to my way of thinking, um, which of course is always subject to revision, <laughs> it seems that uh, there, you know, I wouldn't want to try to do it, but it seems that you could sort of place all the different spiritual teachings and paths along a spectrum of perhaps maturity, you know, and some of them are really rather primitive. And by primitive, I would I would tend to mean, you know, rigid, uh, doctrinaire, um, you know, very sort of close-minded. I mean, you can go places in the South where, you know, there's some little church down the block which feels like it's only got, it, it, it alone has the true teaching you know, <laughs> the other churches and everybody else in the world is off base. Uh, you know, and then moving up the scale, you would find, uh, you know, teachings and teachers that were much more inclusive and uh, you know, appreciative. And, and what I was getting at a, a minute ago is that you know people also fall along that spectrum and perhaps it's natural for people at a certain stage in their development to be in a group or a church or a religion that is very narrow-minded because it just it resonates with their mentality, with their state of consciousness. Mm. And uh, you know, given the evolutionary nature of the universe, I don't think they're going to be there forever. And it would be nice to to find ways of helping every everything move up the spectrum uh, but what I'm saying is that all is well and wisely put, and even that you know uh, you know offensive fundamentalist rigid you know um, teachings have their place in the big picture of things
1: could very well be true you know uh some religious traditions like tibetan buddhism they actually try to structure the religion in such a way that it's uh... being honest in that regard and what i mean by that is they have a kind of spiritual kindergarten and they have intermediate levels of teachings and Further along in Tibetan Buddhism, they basically will end up saying, "Well, you know everything that I've been telling you all this time? Yeah, well, none of it was true, but it got <laughs> you but it got you here, yeah, you know, and now we go from here, you know there's an esoteric teaching that comes out later when you're really prepared for it and will understand you know and take it properly and I think a way to to just give a quick example of that is um, you know everybody's seen the Tibetan prayer wheel." Mm-hmm. And they call those physical supports like prayer flags or physical yeah, and supports. You spin so, and you
0: around, know. yeah,
1: it's full of mantras, and right. you, you're you're repeating mantras by by twirling it, right? Mm-hmm. And so you know that's a good way to get people to sit down, and uh, and they they start a practice every day, and they're using their prayer wheel, and uh, being as mindful with it as they can be, and then maybe later on they don't need the prayer wheel anymore. It's fine to just sit without it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just a, an obvious example, but there's lots of places. Yeah, in that tradition, kind of like uh,
0: training wheels on a bicycle. You know, yeah. that's
1: right. That's yeah. right. That's right. So there's mm-hmm. sort of stages and initiations as you move along. You know, yeah. the kind of gear that you need at tree line on the spiritual mountains—not the same gear you started out with. Right. Started out in tevas, you know, and in uh, you know, sooner or later you get have a parka and mm-hmm. uh, you yeah. know. I I want to ice
0: extend.
1: axes, and <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> probably extend that analogy, but you know, yeah. you get the point that. Uh, I think it's very much like that.
0: Yeah, well, the TM movement was that way too, actually. You know, Marsha used to say the wise don't delude the ignorant and you should just you should speak according to the level of consciousness of the listener. Otherwise, you're just going to confuse him. And, you know, later on it was when all that sort of went public that that's what he was saying. People said, ah, oh, they're just hiding the esoteric teaching because they're afraid to let people know what it really is when you get heavily into it. Uh, and there may have been some of that. But, you know, I feel like, you know, the point you you just made about the Tibetans kind of was... Being uh, exercised there as well.
1: Well, I think so too. I mean, Mm -hmm. I have to say, I got kind of tired of that. I got kind of tired of teaching people that their doctor recommended them because they had a heart condition, and uh, you know, they had listened to the third night's checking meeting and kind of like, yeah, whatever, buddy. You know, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. (laughs) The third third
0: night being the time when you talked about cosmic consciousness.
1: That's right, yeah, so to be able to talk with them about things that they, I mean, and, you know, that's probably, uh, was a huge impetus to my own journey because uh, I remember figuring out, uh, oh, this is a Dwaita Vedanta Mm. in a new package. Uh And so I started matching up the terms, you know, oh, okay, so this, you know, uh, pure consciousness is Samadhi, and uh, pure creative intelligence is Brahman, and, well, what's the stress word, you know? Uh, what's the stress? Vasanas, Yeah, right, and samskaras is Some another word Samskaras, right, yeah. And, and so, okay, uh, then I got so intrigued by that, all right, I want to swim back up the river and go and dig deeper into that, you know, the traditional perspective on that knowledge. hmm So that was really, uh, you know... You know, just like the we're talking about the hunger for transcendence right. uh, leading to uh, break out of uh, being set in my ways at that time. And I certainly was getting kind of set in my ways at that time.
0: Meaning before you learned to meditate? Or, uh, or You know,
1: probably now <laughs> still. You yeah. know, it's very hard for the human uh, mind to not uh, sort of congeal.
0: Yeah. And
1: you have to keep breaking out of it. And, you know, sometimes a friend of mine has a theory. That the only thing we philosophers have ever done by coming up with new theories that was useful Mm -hmm. is breaking us out of the old theories. That's the only real value we have, is that we at least deconstructed the previous viewpoint. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, the cracks let the light in, right? Whenever there's cracks in a new theory, they let some light into the room. Yeah. uh, So I think, you know, before I started TM and then after I was uh, teaching TM for a few years, I was congealing and needed, uh, you know, it wasn't like uh, uh, denigrating what had happened or my viewpoint, but wanting to continue to broaden
0: it. Yeah. Um, Interesting. I I, I, uh, interviewed somebody a couple months ago who made the point that he felt that, um, you know, a couple thousand years ago, there was a uh, much sort of thicker membrane, as it were, to Penetrate if one wanted to get enlightened and that it took a real superman like the Buddha to actually penetrate that membrane because there just wasn't a lot of support for that in society. Uh, Whereas now the membrane has been penetrated so many times that it's much more porous and easier to break through and people are breaking through right and left. And um, I wanted to bring that point up as a segue into uh, having you talk a little bit about cultural change because you mentioned it uh, a little while ago. And um, you know what do you think about that idea that I just said, and also about you know what is happening in the culture? and uh, do you have any sense whatsoever <laughs> where we're headed? you know uh, there's, there does seem to be a, a greater and greater influx of uh, spiritual interest in, in the kind of spiritual development that, that we're talking about here. On the mm-hmm. other hand, on uh, contrasting with that, there seems to be more and more severe problems counterbalancing it.
1: Yeah, well, you know, uh, it's funny you asked this question because I'm just now reading Phil Goldberg's book on American I was just American thinking
0: about Beta. Phil as I was asking that question. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. and yeah. and of course he's very interested in that, and I know he interviewed you for the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, Phil is, you know, the the sort of his explanation I think really rings true for me, which is, back in the '60s, uh, when the floodgates were open to uh, Asian immigration. We got all these yogis and swamis and lamas, and you remember those days, Mm -hmm. and uh, that brought all this knowledge into, uh, at a time when there was this very, very idealistic, romantic generation Mm -hmm. eager for new ways of looking at things and open to new ways of looking at things. And we've been through a very interesting growth curve in the last 40, 50 years Mm -hmm. where um, We've absorbed so much wisdom from the East, but we've also been through a maturation process of realizing how naive we were in that first blush of enthusiasm. Mm. Uh, In India, you know, they've had so many millennia of dealing with fraudulent gurus and uh, gurus that fall off the wagon and uh, that that there's some, um, you know, I don't know maybe the membrane fell out of the sky and landed on them and it's thicker around them now but you know they're 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 harder to dupe they're not as naive they're not as likely to believe they're going to be enlightened in a, in in a few years uh and and I don't think we were but I think we are I think you know Phil is right that in our uh, uh that the boomers now uh have grown and they've realized that uh Spiritual maturity never comes easy that that's the journey of it is um, you know it's a complex process mm. and uh, we've arrived at a place where you know if I'm not as certain about what I think then I'm more likely to be open to your thoughts if they're different mm-hmm. and uh, I think of times back when I was teaching TM when if somebody was talking about a different spiritual path, I had to immediately convince them they were on the wrong one. Yeah. As, and, as a matter uh, of fact,
0: that was part of teacher training. Was a, we had a session towards the end of teacher training where people would bring up every path they could think of, and Maharishi would sit there and point out why it was inferior.
1: Right? Yeah, silver mine control. Yeah, that was one of them, silver mine control. <laughs> we, we, we don't only want to control the silver mine. <laughs> and so to you know to go to a place of... Uh, I remember one time in Hawaii, and I was talking about Hawaii, I was the Sims president on campus,
0: mm-hmm. and we Students got called... Students' International Meditation Society, TM thing, go ahead.
1: That's right, yeah. and, uh, and thanks for that clarification. And I went to a... They were going to have a festival of different... Spiritual groups. Uh-huh. And so the Hare Krishnas were there, and the Swami Muktananda group was there, and you know, you remember all of the different ones. Right. And, and uh, what was interesting, Swami Sachidananda, and in many cases, like in the case of Swami Muktananda, Swami Sachidananda, and us, we were basically giving the exact same teaching from the exact same tradition, the Advaita mm-hmm. tradition. And um, I remember coming in and there was a woman maybe in her 40s and I was in my 20s mm-hmm. and I made eye contact with her and I had that amazing experience you have sometimes when you just sort of fall into each other's emptiness mm-hmm. and um I I had such an admiration for her immediately as a person like mm-hmm. wow this is a person of real quality and I need to open my ears and listen mm-hmm. and um the way that my cohort behaved in that meeting. Mm,
0: embarrassed the heck out of you, right?
1: Oh, it was terrible. It was uh, terrible. It was
0: awful. Yeah. And,
1: uh, and it, it was painful, you know, I mean, uh, emotionally painful to, mm-hmm. to go through that experience. And, uh, and, of course, I thought of the times that I probably did something like that, you know, one or two years earlier. Oh, me
0: too. I cringe at some of the memories. <laughs> right. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting because, you know, spiritual groups, Tend to uh, not only. I mean, I, there's this sort of one one part of it. I think is there's this sort of ego gratification to think I'm on the best path. I must be so fortunate. I must have such good karma or something to have found the highest teaching in the world. Boy, aren't I special? You know, and all these other things, boy. You know, there but for the grace of God go I. I'm so happy that I have the true knowledge. There, you know, and variations on that theme. But you know, there are a lot of spiritual groups who'll talk in, or people who will talk in that very way. Um, mm. And in a sense, you know, like if you take an example, the example of Marshy University of Management, it it's it's a, it actually hurts them more than helps them, in my opinion. Uh, f- because, for instance, uh, there have been a number of spiritual teachers who've come to Fairfield, Iowa, where that university is located, who've expressed sincere interest in the university. And Sri Ma, for instance, who's a Hindu teacher, you may have heard of her, mm-hmm. was here, and, and she was actually got, somehow got onto a tour, and she was touring campus, and uh, somehow the administration got wind of it in the middle of her tour, uh, went and found her, she was in the dome at that point, and kicked her off campus. Uh, oh, And oh. then, you know, Gangaji was here, and she wanted to take a tour of campus and, and asked if she could and was refused. Uh, you know, because there was this sort of fear that, well, these other teachers coming around are going to corrupt the students or something. And, mm. you know, in my opinion, that's very counterproductive because these people could have been recruiters. They don't have universities, you know, but they, right. but they do have students. <laughs> and if the students yeah. are of college age, they might very well have said, go there, you know, a good place. But instead, right. look at the impression that was made
1: yeah and ji is even in the same same Edwitan tradition, you know, yeah, so I mean her viewpoint is very very resonant with uh the viewpoint you know there, so there's a real irony, yeah 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 there's something really sad about that i i think
0: and uh and there's something so uh enriching about the cross fertilization of you know being more open and, you know, interacting and participating and discussing with people of various perspectives. And if you really are se- secure, I mean, we talked about certainty in the beginning, if you really are secure in what whatever it is you're doing, it's not going to be a threat, you know?
1: That's right. That's right. I, th- I think you're very right about that. And, and if you uh, are willing to discuss the points, then, you know, you can agree to disagree or you might, find that you want to modify the way you look at things. I mean, I certainly had to when I got to India. You know, talking about people being dogmatic reminds me one time. Uh, this is 1988, and uh, I was doing a lot of writing on the Dundees, and I would follow them around. Say what and the,
0: that, tell people what the Dundees uh, so,
1: are. Uh, so the Dundees are a sect of Swamis in India. They're the most Rudiwadi, the most orthodox sect of Hindu that you have to be a Brahmin to be a Dundee. Mm-hmm. And uh, they spend a lot of time hanging around in the Himalayas, and that's one of the main reasons I was interested, because uh, I like hiking. Right. And uh, so I'm up there and following these guys around with cameras and tape recorders and uh, going to different m- monasteries and interviewing them every day, mm-hmm. and uh, you know crunching data for academic work. Well, anyway, uh, one of these incredible, incredible Swamis... Uh, and they're not all incredible, but this one, this one ha- happened to be Sundananda's name was. He um, he said, "Have you heard of this man Swami Rama?" And I said, "Yeah, I have heard of him. You know, Honesdale, Pennsylvania. He's got an American following." And he said, "He is now living on uh, you know w- where he was living in Travani, Ghat, and Rishikesh is directly across the r- the river from uh, Marishi's old ashram." And so he said, you know, you should drop in there because he used to be a Dundee and now he's not. So I was interested academically in, like, why did he leave that order but still calls himself a Swami. And uh, so I went to the ashram. Well... The uh, Chokidar Dar and I got along really well. The guard and I got along really well because he had never met a Westerner that could speak fluent Hindi. Uh-huh. It was kind of like meeting a dog that could talk. <laughs> you know, he kept wanting to chat me up. Like, wow, some of them can talk. You know? <laughs> and so, talking to this guy, and um, I said, you know, can I can I come in? And he got kind of uh, uncomfortable. I could tell he was uncomfortable. And so, this woman came, and she was a. Um, the course leader from canada and they had a course there of maybe 50 people and um uh, she sort of read me the riot act who did i think i was going to be that i was just going to show up and talk to the swami and i tried to explain to her the that talking to Swamis was what I did for a living and that I had talked to like seven already today. <laughs> and uh, you know, it, and The thing that was kind of sad about that is I realized very quickly that I couldn't clarify my position. I could only make her madder. Huh. If I disagreed with her, I could only make her matter. Why you was know? she so
0: mad? Because she thought you were uh, sort of presumptuous to be showing up at this important place and just expecting to walk in and get an audience? Was that her problem?
1: Yeah, I mean, whatever somebody at MUM said to Gungaji was basically the load I got. Right. You know, that was what went on. And uh, and so, you know, I'm standing there saying, look, you know, I don't mean any harm. I, I just would like to interview him for this project I'm working on. And uh, if it's not too much trouble, and she wasn't reflecting on whether it would be too much trouble or not. Hmm. Well, what happens is uh, a, a car shows up, one of those Indian ambassadors, and out steps Swami Ram, and mm-hmm. and the Chokidar tells him I can speak Hindi, uh-huh. so he addresses me in Hindi, and we start talking. Swami Ram looks at her and says, go get tea. <laughs> 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 go get some tea. I'm going to talk with this guy for a while. <laughs> and, you know, she she obsequiously left, but there was no uh, apology or I'm sorry uh. to have made you stand here and yeah. uh been, been unpleasant to you and... uh You know, I think of that time that Muktananda and Marishi made that very uh, beautiful hug. Right. You know, Uh, I think there's a really great example of that. Like, can we be as open-minded? And presumably by this point, if we really trust our paths, and we've been doing these things for all these decades, then we can believe that we have grown. Yeah. And if we have grown, then then, uh, we have to prove that by demonstrating it in our behavior and not following a flow chart of you know, correct action, quote-unquote.
0: Well, one thing I think that woman at the ash, at Swami Rama's place, evidenced was that when people get into positions of authority, their egos go crazy, you know, at, mm-hmm. at, at least at a certain stage of development, you know. I mean, you can take a, personally, a perfectly nice, reasonable person and put them in a position of authority, and all of a sudden they become a Nazi. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, right, yeah. I think that's true to some extent, yeah, yeah. I think that's true. I hope I never... Have to pass that test. (laughs) I've seen it too many times in India. You know where somebody will get to the finally get to the top of the heap, and uh, their worst nightmare comes true. I think in some cases.
0: Yeah. So uh, let's talk about India for a little bit. I mean, you've been there twelve times, and you've been interviewing all these swamis. Um, What could you? What can you tell us about India? And well, you know, specifically about your experience in meeting all these guys that um, people would find uh, fascinating.
1: Well, you know, probably a lot of the people who are listening to this have been to India. I don't know how much time they've really spent there. I mean, uh, my experience over all these years, 30 years now of going to India regularly, and my wife and I are going this December, Mm -hmm. is that it was uh, incredibly disillusioning Mm -hmm. and incredibly inspirational. So there's that mystery again, right, having to live with paradox, Mm -hmm. because I remember so many times. Where there would be a letdown, uh, and uh, and then you become kind of jaded because you've seen it all before. Mm-hmm. In India, the ability to uh, perform miracles is you know the way that inside of some uh, Advaitin movements, when you're witnessing uh, waking, dreaming, and sleeping, that's the proof that you're now enlightened, you're bona fide, mm-hmm. qualified, and finished mm-hmm. in some sense. And uh, in India, you know, to practice the uh, cities to be able to manifest objects, you know, why Sai Baba is still as popular as he is. Hmm. And uh, so what happens (laughs) is. He's a
0: flat hand artist.
1: Exactly, and, and there's so many of them in India. You know, I've, actually, he's not I've, a good
0: sleight of hand artist. I've had I've had magicians look at his thing. You know, friends of mine yeah. who, are, who are into magic and say, "Wait, he's just an amateur." You know, I could do a lot better than that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, there's there's a book, uh, "The Sorcerer's Apprentice," mm-hmm. that's really worth getting. But uh, there's an anecdote in there where a guy is with Sai Baba, and Sai, it's around American Easter time and Sai Baba manifests some Easter candy, Uh and he's passing it out to people, and the guy observes that the candy has passed its expiration date on the back of the candy, (laughs) (laughs) which I think is awesome. Uh, You know, if if you like these kind of stories, let me give you a a really fun one. Um, I started to get very familiar with the Jadugars, the magicians, and the tricks that they were doing, and the tricks the Swamis were doing. And so it would be like... um, uh, you know, oh I can stop my heart from beating mm-hmm. and uh, I'm going to go into samadhi, you take my pulse and you'll see that I, my heart is stopped. And I would say uh, oh you've got a walnut under your arm and you're squeezing it into your armpit and stopping the pulse uh-huh. from coming down your arm. <laughs> and, and sometimes they would be sort of um, you know, surprised and embarrassed but I remember once going into a Krishna temple in Missouri there was a man sitting, a Baba sitting in front of the door and he had a bowl in front of him, so I reached down to put a rupee coin in his bowl and he, he no, don't, don't give me money. I do not need any money, and, and this was kind of a new one for me because they tend to like <laughs> money a lot. He said, uh, if I need anything, I can manifest it myself, and I said, really? And he said, yes, he goes, if I am, if I am thirsty, and he reaches up and he grabs his dreadlocks and he like squeezes his dreadlocks and all this milk started to pour off of his face and it filled this bowl mm-hmm. and um, and he looks up at me and I said oh no see I know that one you take a sponge you fill it up with milk you hide it in your dreadlocks and then you squeeze it and you got this kind of funny look on his face and then he said okay have you seen this one <laughs> You didn't even blink. He just went to the next <laughs> trick, you know, like, maybe I'll get him on this one, you know. Okay, that was a, that was a goof, but now we're filled that. So, you know, lots of those kinds of experiences. And uh,
0: Did you ever see anybody perform what you considered to have been an, a, a genuine city?
1: Uh, no, I can't say. I okay. can't say, because I've thought about that a lot. I can't say I have. Yeah. Now, I have seen, I have seen... Uh, amazing uh, body control, mm-hmm. amazing, amazing, amazing. You know, hatha yoga at a level most people can't. I can't imagine. I I saw a man in a in a marketplace one time in a bazaar, uh, holding up a snake, mm-hmm. about a mm-hmm. two and a half foot long cobra, mm-hmm. kalisarp and he's saying, kalisarp dekhiye, dekhiye, look at this kalisarp and so he's grown this group of people around him, and he was talking about Kundalini Yoka, you know, the serpent power and all this. And he takes this snake and he sticks the head of the snake in his mouth,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and he ingested this entire snake.
0: Whoa, the, a live snake? A live snake. Wow, I wonder was how the snake felt about
1: that. Uh, I probably didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and sort of the proof of that was. Then he kept going for only you know, maybe another minute or two uh-huh. on this lecture about the serpent power rising. Uh-huh. Then he drank this, this uh, glass of water, a volume uh-huh. of water, and then he started doing this thing with his diaphragm. You could see him manipulating uh-huh. it. Pretty soon, he opens up his mouth, and here comes the head of the cobra, uh-huh. and he takes this cobra, you know, wow. he brings this cobra all the way out. Like, I don't know whether he was drowning the cobra with the water in his stomach cavity, and the snake found his esophagus enough that he could grab it. Uh huh. You know, he's re- he was re- he regurgitated it head first. And
0: it was still alive.
1: And it was still alive, and I was close enough that, you no, know, he didn't switch snakes or something. Yeah, I mean, I've didn't seen
0: put it down his sleeve or something like that. No,
1: he wasn't even wearing a shirt. Yeah. Uh, he just had a he just had a lungi on. Huh. Uh, you know, so I mean, that's incredible, right? I mean, it's absolutely amazing, yeah. but it's not. Uh, I wonder if he
0: does that like 10 times a day, you know, in the, in the market for the audiences. Yeah,
1: probably. probably. You know, and then what he will do is something like this, Rick. He'll Maybe he'll, the snake
0: uh, is like totally used to it by now. and, You
1: know, right there in cahoots.
0: Is fed well, figures it's a good gig.
1: Well, what he'll do is he'll have a ring on his finger often, these guys, and they'll say, I can do this and I do never get bit because of the power of Kalima. And so this ring is protecting me, Mm -hmm. and uh, you know I can bring people back from the dead with this ring. I've never been ill because of this ring, and so inevitably after the show, you know, some country bumpkin will say, "You know, my mother is dying. I could really use that ring," (laughs) and so he'll you know pay you know an exorbitant amount for a poor person, two or three hundred rupees. Then, of course, the guy's got a whole bag full of these rings, you know, and goes on to the next village. And
0: Shame.
1: So I've seen that so many times.
0: So that's but, the disillusionment uh, side. How about the inspiration <laughs> side?
1: The inspiration side, and his real inspiration, is that um, you never meet them out in the marketplace, unfortunately. And unfortunately, if you if you can't speak an Indian language, you're rarely ever going to meet them. Just because it cuts down on the numbers of people you can be exposed to and communicate with, not that there that all communication has to be verbal, right? But uh, you know, I have certainly met uh, men and women that I profoundly respect. They're you know they're doing the real work and they've really gotten somewhere. Uh, and I think that we have a good. What do I want to call it? Uh, I think I think, especially after a certain level of spiritual maturity. We become very adept at kind of smelling a stink bomb in the room. <laughs> you know, whether you've been to India and seen all the tricks or not, you can kind of tell mm. if somebody's being authentic. And uh, you know, I think in the American uh, experience of spiritual teachers, uh, they te- we tend to like our spiritual teachers good-looking. Mm-hmm. We sort of laminate, as Andrew Harvey says, the movie star. Uh, that's the template. The movie star and the veneration of movie stars becomes our template for venerating spiritual teachers. Mm-hmm. So they're often good looking and they're often very charismatic, and uh, and in my experience they're not. Right. Uh, my experience in India, they're not either one of those things. They're they you know not that you have to be homely to be enlightened or something. No, they're
0: just but, a cross but, section of how people tend to look, and you know only a only yeah. a handful are going to be movie star types.
1: That's right. And they may not even be very articulate about what they're trying to communicate. They're experiencing something, mm-hmm. but they're not going to tell you the snake and rope analogy. Right? They're, not, you know what I mean. They're going to fall back on these sort of kneed analogies. They're going to express it as, as we all do, right? We all, uh, you know, art is uh, life is an art, and so you're expressing the art of what you are. And every now and then, you'll meet someone who's so incredibly beautiful, whether they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, male or female, monk or not monk, or uh, some of the village people for me are so inspirational. Their life is so simple, and they've had to face uh, a very hard life, Mm -hmm. and that's caused them to not take life for granted, and they've fallen into this really beautiful, beautiful place. Hmm. Uh, And even some of, you know, I I don't want to run down swamis because I've got some good friends that are swamis, um, Sundanan that I was talking about before, uh, and my wife had this experience with him too, when I took my wife to meet him, and my wife is no, you know, she's not a mystical pickle, as we used to call him. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's hard to impress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's not even really particularly interested, quite frankly. She finds her spiritual growth in other directions. She's an artist. Uh, I had to warn her when we were going to meet Sundanan, Uh, He likes eye contact, but don't make eye contact with him for very long. Mm -hmm. And what would happen with him? He didn't meet many people, but when he did, he enjoyed the experience of pouring back and forth into each other's being. Mm -hmm. And you could—he would—he would would pull you. You know, you would—you would go into samadhi whether you wanted to or not. If you—if you just sat with him for a while and made eye contact, you wouldn't really even realize a process was going on. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't really consciously doing it, he was just so profoundly in samadhi that you got a contact high out of it, you would just be pulled into it if you weren't already there, you know? Mm, interesting. Yeah. There's, yeah. A,
0: there's a group here in town, oh, it's all over the country, called Waking Down, started by Samuel Bonder, uh, and that gazing is part of their deal. And, uh, you know, it seems to be quite effective actually in helping to kind of transmit or enliven Samadhi in one another um, just part of the I, I think I
1: think that's true I think that uh, that's a very viable channel uh, it's like uh, you know think of romantic love poetry from the 18th and 19th century the romantics really believed there were you know several primary doorways into the infinite one of them was, like uh, Henry David Thoreau, time spent in nature. John Muir, time spent in nature. Um, art was most definitely, you know, if you're thinking about Chopin or uh, Wagner or Franz Liszt, that you know, music was the doorway into the infinite. And I've had that experience. Mm-hmm. I know you have. You're sure. a music fan, and and so also romantic love, mm-hmm. that love between two people. Uh, you know, I make meaningful eye contact with my wife all the time. you know, mm-hmm. I make meaningful eye contact with my uh nephew's dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think we really do see to the bottom sometimes yeah. in each
0: other. The eyes are the windows of the soul,
1: right mm-hmm. and we see uh you know we can see there's something delicious about that that we seem to be too, but when we see to the bottom of each other, we merge into that same one place and mm-hmm. uh So I see why they're using it as a door. Now, the thing is, uh, you know, we create a kind of false idolatry when we say, oh, this works for me, therefore it's the path. You know, and and one of the things I always worry when I talk about the human mind being robotic is if we're drowning in the infinite at every minute of every day, well, right now we're drowning in the infinite. Mm. So are we seeing it that way? And if we if we don't, is it because oh, oh later I'm going to drown in the infinite? You know when I look into Billy's eyes, but right now there's no infinite available. Uh, you know I think when we really do the work, then uh, we don't. Do you see where I'm going with this? I think is so. That every, I mean, if everything is coming out of the infinite, everything's a doorway back into the infinite. Is is the hope? So you know you can be looking in into eyes, and that is a viable path. You can be t- spending time in nature. You can be meditating. You can be swallowing snakes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, if if it's a, if it's something that you're applying yourself to, uh, with the right consciousness, then it becomes a powerful tool. And if you, you know, I, I, th- know. I think it, in my experience,
0: it just becomes more and more evident. I mean, if the infinite is infinite, then there's no place where it is not. And there's no thing in which it is not, no circumstance, no experience in which it is not staring you right in the face. And, um, you know, as we sort of gradually or quickly, however, unravel that roboticism that you mentioned, um, then the, the likelihood of, of having at least a taste of it at all times be increases, tends, continues to increase. And, you know, it gets to be more and more than just a taste as time goes on.
1: That's right. I couldn't have said it better. I couldn't have said it better. I mean, I think that's, that's it.
0: And it's important, I think, to clarify one's understanding of what it is that one is heading for if, if, if a person's on the path to enlightenment. Because uh, I know in this town there are people who have built up sort of grandiose, fantastic notions of what it's going to be. And since they don't detect anything of that nature in their own experience, they, they feel that they must be a million miles away from it. Still, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas it's you know it's closer than your own breath, um, and if we can just sort of get more realistic, perhaps about what it actually is, uh, then we it, it helps it helps a lot in terms of noticing what the degree to which it's already being lived.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I think that was the gift uh, back in those early days when you and I met 40 years ago this mm-hmm. coming December or something. Uh, that I, I had read so much Emerson and Thoreau and Aldous Huxley and all this stuff that you read and you read and you read about this idea of the infinite, but then as you got the gift of a particular technique, a particular path, as you got the gift of um, different conceptual structures that could kind of you know, point you to it. Oh, I thought that that was a deer, but it's really a moose. You know what I'm saying? That you had concepts that clarified your understanding of something you were experiencing, like you know when you're on a mountain and you're having that experience of profound timelessness, and mm-hmm. you don't want to be in the past and you're not thinking about the future. It's so delicious to just be in the moment. Yeah. Okay. That's it. That's it. You mm-hmm. know, you're walking on a beach with somebody you love, and there's just this playful, wonderful, deliciousness. Yes. Okay. That's it. Mm-hmm. You know, this moment when chills are running up your spine where you're listening to a symphony, okay, that's it. And I think that back in those days, that was the gift, is to set all those experiences inside of a context of, wow, you know, uh, if I don't drown in my thoughts and if I don't put all my attention on the future, if I do be here now, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then I can, I can find some contact with that. And it's as... As, uh, and I'm sure this is your experience, Rick, that it is so comfortable and so familiar, like you know, familiar like your breath. You smell your own breath every minute of every day, and so you can't smell your breath. But it's right there. It's always just there, there, yeah. there. And uh, you know, that that's the gift of those days. I think is to have somebody point it out and say, you know, this is it, and and. Uh, and no, it's not lightning bolts shooting out of your head, and it's not your ability to swallow snakes, and it's not your ability to stop your heartbeat. And, or, and when I say it's not that, I mean, I'm really saying it's not that to me, inside right. of my own view, because, you know. That's uh, not a
0: necessary criterion of it.
1: That's know? right. Maybe that's somebody
0: right. Who can do, who's enlightened can swallow snakes, and maybe somebody who can swallow, there may be people who can swallow snakes who aren't enlightened, but the two are not necessarily correlated.
1: Exactly, and and then the other piece of that for me, for me, is that um, that ability to apprehend the absolute, to to be there, to feel it, to uh, enjoy it, uh, is is not full spiritual maturity to me.
0: Right. I was going to say that actually. Go ahead, and you might as well elaborate because you're responding to a question I was going to ask.
1: Full spiritual maturity, to me, is recognizing that there's no such thing as full spiritual maturity. Right. It's really recognizing that the road is a, an infinite, continuous flowering inside of your individual moment of existence, that there will always be room for growth and room for insight, that uh, that, that will never, ever end. And there's something very beautiful about it never ending. You know, I I like that. Uh, you know, I'm thinking of teachers that teach from that viewpoint. Houston teaches from that viewpoint, you know, that that, uh, I was talking with you once about Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and he says the need for self-actualization is the most, is the highest of all human drives, that, okay, once we have food, we want to feel like we belong to people, and we have a drive for self-respect, and and so so on and so forth, Mm -hmm. but that ultimately we have a drive for self-actualization. But he points out in his description of what self-actualization is, and he interviewed dozens of people that he felt were self-actualized, including Aldous Huxley, was that inside of their viewpoint, the journey never ended, Mm -hmm. that the self-actualized realized that self-actualization is never complete, it's an ongoing process that goes on and on and on. So I think very often we might say, "Oh, I'm going." Uh, enlightenment is this, and I want to meet that criterion. And I think that's sad. Uh, I think it's sad because uh, there's something. There's always going to be something richer to discover inside of one's growth. That okay, I'm experiencing the the uh, feeling that the infinite. Is looking over my shoulder all the time. Okay, mm-hmm. what's that doing for the growth of my heart? Mm-hmm. What's that doing for the reduction of my ego? Mm-hmm. What's that doing for my the visionary, imaginative capacity of my mind to uh, imagine other ways that we could live and transcend global warming and climate? You know, fix yeah, these. Sure. So there's so many there's so many avenues for growth there to sort of say, oh well, you know, that was fun, and now I'm here and uh, yeah, it's
0: Interesting. As you were speaking, um, I was kind of reminded of Eckhart Tolle because he's so effective at at just talking people into an, a, a state of presence and enabling them to appreciate that you know what is here right now is is what you're looking for. This is it. You know, um, and there are there are some and so there's great value in that. And there are some teachers, however, who you know sort of conclude that an appreciation of the now or appreciation of, of the present moment or, or of the kind of the ever fresh aliveness of each moment is all, there is, is all that enlightenment actually is, you know, and that, that's what all these guys have been talking about. And, and, they, and they sort of conclude, okay, well, I've got it then, this is it, I'm done. Um, and to, to me that's sort of a, I mean, it's, it's a short, short changing themselves and it's, it's also a little bit lazy uh, you know,
1: uh, <laughs> I see it way too.
0: Yeah, uh, and you know, getting back to the old paradox word, um, there's no conflict between appreciating that you know this presence that we dwell in now uh, is you know is what we're looking for, and yet uh, you know seeing infinite room for growth. You know, I mean, that may seem paradoxical because, you know, I mean, there's some teachers who say give up the search, you know, just relax. And yeah, you can do that. You can, I mean, I don't have the sense of searching that I used to have, uh, which was sort of a craving of, oh, I'm not anywhere near where I want to be. I can't wait till I get there. You know, now there's, I feel like I've given up the search, but at the same time, uh, I feel like there's an infinite road ahead of wondrous sort of possibilities uh, um, to explore and to unfold.
1: Well, see, I would see that Rick is, is... Uh, a much more sophisticated spiritual maturity than the person who's simply witnessing continuously. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. I, I really would. I really do. I mean, I think that's a huge insight when you get to the place of uh, um, yeah. Don't let your ego metastasize to that complimentary. Right? We always yeah, have. To I was just, you couldn't say it,
0: but I was just uh, shining shining badge here.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I think about teachers and and uh, you know teachers like. Uh, Bubba Free John and, I want to and talk others. talk him later. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. But you know what I'm saying? Where, yeah. the, uh, you know, I believe he probably was having a continuous experience of uh, cosmic consciousness. Mm-hmm. But uh, boy, the ego swoll up to the size of the infinite, right along with uh, the rest of him. And, um, you know, I hate to denigrate anybody's teacher, and, uh, and I'm sure somebody got something out of those teachings. Oh, yeah. In fact, a couple of those books were absolutely fantastic. They were. Uh, and, and this I guy, think... Samuel
0: Bonder, that I uh, referred to earlier, who's the founder of Waking Down, was one of uh, Free John's closest disciples for a dec- couple of decades. And he was like the, you know, he he edited all those books and published them. and you know, oh. he, he, he was his right-hand man. And, okay. um, he ended up, uh, you know, leaving eventually, and was sort of uh, regarded as a, a heretic for having left. And ended up, you know, blossoming into a very profound awakening himself after having left. Um, but, you know, despite the screwiness of that whole scene, you know, something really good came out of it. At least in this guy. Um,
1: right, 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 and that certainly happens. And I mean, we don't
0: have to, uh, you know, I, I, w- I wouldn't want to sort of recount a laundry list of all the things that this guy was up to, Baba Free John. You can look on the Internet and find it. Uh, but I, I interviewed somebody towards the beginning of this series who was also a student of his. And, you know, she she said, you know, he was a great tantric. And I didn't want to sort of spoil the occasion by, by sort of getting into all this stuff. But to me, that kind of a... That's sort of a... What's the word? Not an alibi. What's the word? You know, just cop sort of, out. a cop out <laughs> word to excuse what, by any normal standards, is atrocious behavior.
1: Yeah, th- pedophilia. Th-
0: yeah, all kinds of stuff. I mean, you wouldn't believe it—drugs and uh, just a yeah. whole, you know. And I'm sure it would also make genuine tantrics, you know, shudder in their shoes to, to hear th- themselves compared different. to this. Uh, but uh, and this whole idea of crazy wisdom that, that teachers can uh, do all sorts of really weird, abusive, unacceptable by so normal social standards stuff and chalk it up to you know, being unattached to the relative or being a crazy wisdom master, really for all my liberal open-mindedness does not sit right with me. You know, I really feel like there's some screws loose. And as you say, you know they may have a very profound level of of experience but it uh, obviously doesn't correlate tightly with any sort of human development and for them i would think growth will necessarily take the form of you know really getting the other half of their life together you know the the relative personality and morals and and all sorts of stuff like that
1: that's right and i you know and i couldn't agree with you more is that uh you know, somebody might be having an experience of witnessing regularly, and yet they can't go to Thanksgiving because they always are very upset by their experience with their family or, or something like this. That. Uh, well, Ramdas said know,
0: that. He said, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your parents.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and I think that's it. I think that uh, have you done the work on the level. You know, I, I even remember back in the time when I first started meditating. I really saw it, you know, as a you know naive nineteen-year-old. Okay, I'm going to outrun all my problems. That yeah. all these issues of insecurity and uh, complications with my relationship with my father and all that. Okay, well, I'm just going to in, in meditate and I'll reach enlightenment, and all that will dissolve, and none of that will be in my mind anymore. And uh, you I do You were yeah. actually
0: taught that because you know, that's right. When we thought. TM, we said this is a simple solution to all problems. You don't water the root to enjoy the fruit. You don't have to worry about dealing with specific, you know, relative uh, matters. All you have to do is introduce the transcendent. It'll sort of nourish and infuse itself into the whole tree of life, and all your problems will be solved. That's right.
1: That's right. You know, $35, please. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a little more now, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, And that reminds me one time a a friend came to visit us. who and i won 't mention this person 's name uh, you know claimed, claimed to be um, having this uh, enlightenment experience claimed to be completed you know fully fully enlightened in every sense of that word, uh, and they were sitting on our deck uh, on a lake up in northern maine, and lo- we have a lot of loons in the mm-hmm. summertime, and loons make four primary calls. Mm-hmm and this loon made a call and it and the call uh the the response from the the friend was oh my god that's so beautiful you know mm. i hope we get to hear that again mm. and um my wife gave me this very meaningful look because that was the the alarm call oh he was, that was upset the, about that, something yeah, yeah that was the terrible danger call yeah. you know warning each other huh. and uh yeah it is beautiful on one level and uh and yet that wasn't the intent of the friend. I know him well enough to know what he meant. Yeah. And uh, you see what I'm, sa- what I'm saying is that there's lots of knowledge and lots to learn and lots of compassion to develop. And uh, yeah. you know,
0: Well, interestingly, uh, this fellow, Samuel Bonder, who started waking down after having been with you know, Adi for so many years and then having his own awakening. The whole emphasis of that group is, it's called waking down in mutuality. And by down, they mean sort of the embodiment of the awakening. They, they, they sort of feel like the awakening is the first stage. And then you have to embody that, have to bring it into your life, you know, and make your life, uh, you know, resonate or align with that. And then the mutuality part is to get it resonating with your, you know, other people in your life. Uh, so that enlightenment is not just some kind of aloof thing, and your your relative life is divorced from that, or it, it's rather something that permeates every every dimension of your life.
1: Mm. Well, that's that's noble. I mean, you know, in, in uh, Mahayana Buddhism, in in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, for example, uh, wisdom and compassion go hand in hand, and how that plays out socially, is they would say. You want to get over yourself or get yourself get your ego uh, under control and uh, have a more profound experience beyond the boundaries of individuality uh, that 's easy. start helping other people mm-hmm. that through compassion for others you know that that becomes the sadhana yeah. that becomes the practice and so by reaching out to others and improving their conditions uh, one one is growing you know one is growing very quickly so you know do we start by uh when i get my house in order then i'm going to go and help others and then there are traditions that say well no no i'll start by helping mm-hmm. and uh you know i see joining the sierra club as a kind of yoga as a kind of sadhana mm-hmm. i see uh people you know greenpeaceers out there trying to save whales from being yeah. harpooned and putting I, themselves I, oh, I watch this th-
0: you watch whale wars
1: yeah right love, love that show <laughs> yeah it's pretty incredible and i yeah. and i you know i admire not only the courage but the the uh you know interspecies love that mm-hmm. uh, is going on there yeah. so you know we've we've come back full circle to this idea that uh you know it's all coming out of the absolute so everything is a path back into it and uh and uh you know i, th- I think it's wonderful if there is that added social peace uh in this group that you're talking about, I think that's really wonderful that they're saying, well, we, you know, mutually we're going to uh, grow and support each other.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm not a proponent for that group, but I just happened to mention it because we were talking about Adi Da and how he was a, a case, uh, such a an extreme example of someone who seemed to have a profound inner development, but it didn't, you know, pan out on the outside. And it's interesting that his his primary student. Ended up, you know, fo- forming a group in which, you know, that was his em- that was the emphasis, uh, you know, bringing the inner aware- awareness in to to bear to bear on uh, outer life in in all its aspects. Just, okay, just kind of worked out. It seems like appropriate for him to have done that.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I like your cat sadhana, now, where you're doing your yoga of letting the cat in and out.
0: Oh, can you see the cat from where you're? Standing?
1: No, no, but I can see the door opening. Yeah, and that's it. It's, out. The, it's cats and the door. <laughs> now she's coming.
0: <laughs> comes up on my lap, too. Here you go. (laughs) Here, everybody. This is is an official member of Buddha at the gas pump. All right. (laughs)
1: Make eye contact with her. Uh, You know, you mentioned Tantra, Rick, Uh and uh, that's such a poor excuse that gets played way too often. Mm. Uh, uh, And I've heard it so many times. Uh, For a while I was doing a thing where when I would read uh, Tricycle magazine, or I would read Yoga Journal, uh, you know, Enlightenment magazine. I would act as a whistleblower sometimes, uh, not you know, like oh Dana knows everything and he's calling, you know, he he's claiming he knows these traditions better than everyone. I certainly don't, but uh, some traditions I do know and am very familiar with, and I kn- I know quite a lot about tantra. And uh, there have been groups who have tried to create these weekends where we're going to teach you how to have better sex and, uh, you know, more loving partnerships. And that has nothing to do with tantra, even remotely. Hmm. uh, It really has nothing to do with that. It's really much more like, okay, you know, referencing our conversation, if everything comes out of the absolute, then everything comes out of the infinite and it is part of the one design. So that means death is part of it. That means that feces is part of it. And so, whenever we turn up our nose to any aspect of it, we're making a. You know, the divisions are in the mind. The divisions aren't in in reality. Yeah. And so, the tantric is saying, "Okay, uh, I'm going to." You know, if you you think about American gurus, getting back to that. They're often backlit, you know, they're very good looking Mm -hmm. and they're backlit and they have this big halo of light and, you know, some kind of pretty colored robe on and all that. And uh, in India, there are a lot of tantric sadhus like the Naga Babas who will smear themselves with the ashes of the dead and they sleep in the smashing grounds, you know, the the cremation ground. And so they they wash with ashes of the dead and they sleep and use skulls for pillows and. Mm They're really saying, I'm, I'm training myself to overcome my, my fear of death. Mm-hmm. And part of that is my attachment to the illusion that death isn't part of life. And so that piece of it, in uh, that piece of it that I'm going to learn to control my desire to such a point where, like Shiva, even during sex, I have transcended attachment. And and owning my own being in the center of what I am, uh, it's not about having fun, <laughs> you know. Oh, well, I guess not... that's
0: the way it gets distorted because people sort of feel like, oh, okay, well, if the absolute is in everything, then I can just do everything. I can take all these drugs, and I can sleep with my students' you know wives, and I can. Uh, you know, do this, that, and the other thing, and it's all just, I'm just sort of exploring various expressions of the Absolute. So there's, you know, just any sort of sense of morality is thrown out the window.
1: Well, what happens is then one is telling the truth and a lie at the same time, and the truth is, from the level of the Absolute, there is no consequence. From the level of the, you know, from the level of the unchanging being, then uh, there is no consequence in any action. Ultimately, how could there be? Right. It's uh, you, right. It's but 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 then there's the, then there's life down here, you know, in the world, also, yeah. and and there are consequences to actions, and there and they can be profound and they can be very damaging. Yeah. And to not, and to try to, uh, you know, confuse levels. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Confuse levels or appropriate an entire really beautiful uh, sadhana like Tantra, and to say, oh, I'm going to use this for my own uh, personal gratification, like, you know, uh, hey uh, baby, come on up to my place, <laughs> show you my Tantric yoga, you know. But um, um,
0: did you feel that the you know, the nagababas that you met uh, were, most of them, you know, genuine and making genuine progress? I mean, I, I interviewed a lady a few weeks ago who spent a lot of time in India, and um she had befriended a Yaga, a nagababa there and she she felt like 95% of them were just you know heavy duty potheads and weren't really you know making a lot of spiritual progress and you know maybe only a small portion were the real article
1: yeah i'd push it up more to 99% maybe <laughs> but uh but i have met nagababas that uh You know, and again, I I, I don't have anything like the gold standard. You only, you know, you go by the experience you have with the person. Mm. But uh, I remember once uh, Naga Babas will, when they're traveling, uh, make a fire called a Duni, and they'll sit and tend that fire, and um, they'll often smoke hashish in the mountains uh, as much to sort of moderate their feeling of being cold, Mm. You know, it's it's part of that, and it's also part of a sadhana for the ones that are doing it seriously. Mm-hmm. And uh, can I find my way to being inside inside of this? I mean, ganja is sacred to Shiva, so in their mind, it's a sacred you know experience to be stoned. And I remember, uh, it, you know, there's their view. Uh, if you go to Benares in the afternoon, uh, on a hot afternoon, it's impossible to find any kind of alcohol or a cold beer. But there 's lots of Bang lassi, you know, lots mm. of that, and everybody uh, is it is a holy city you can 't be intoxicated here, and yet everybody is taking Bang lassi because it 's right. sacred. Shiva and Benaras is his city, but anyway, just just uh, finishing that thought, I remember sitting around the fire with this Naga Baba one night and having one of the most amazing experiences i 've ever had with another person. you know you could be profoundly sincere on a on a viable spiritual path you. Know? Mm. Interesting. Must have had good teachers.
0: Yeah, yeah it takes all types, huh? So, um, just uh, we won't go on too much longer because I know it's getting late for you. But um, what, what what did you what have you taken away from your whole India experience? I mean, you've been there twelve times. You've been doing you've been interviewing all these guys. What have you done with that? Written articles? I mean, are you getting funded to go over there by your university? And if so, what are they getting out of it? What? What is the sort of like practical distillation of of all this India travel that you've been doing?
1: Uh, you know, there there's a whole world, Rick. I mean, there's so much there. I mean, after 30 years and loving the country so much, my wife and I intend to retire there. Ah. I mean, that's how much we love India. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's music and it's food and it's friends mm-hmm. and it's particular cities that I like and we like to hike and you know beautiful mountain scenery and uh, and all that sort of stuff I don't know if I could you know uh, distill it into one one simple thing I I do very much enjoy the spiritual life of India uh, I love to go to temples you know I was never sort of a uh, God with a face kind of person, you know, Ramakrishna used to say when people come to visit him, uh, do you like to talk about the sacred with form or without form? Mm. And then whatever they said, that's where he would go, you know, because he loved both. And I've come to really appreciate, you know, chanting kirtan in the evening and, uh, you know, uh, sitting with people in a temple and uh, watching the life of the temple the big temple cities in south india chidambaram uh, mm. uh Meenak- the meenakshi temple in madurai is a place that everybody should see one time in their life i mean mm. if you're a spiritual seeker then you can bypass the taj mahal and go right to the meenakshi temple in mm. madurai and you know really see what you're looking for in my uh, mm. in my personal opinion mm. so you know the accessibility of more of that kind of experience is certainly you know yeah. one of the lures
0: one point I want to make about India is I have a friend who, um, I don't know if she's actually even listened to any of these interviews I do. She lives here in town, but she often criticizes me for kind of making a big fuss about people whom she considers to be real newbies on the spiritual path, even though they may re- be reporting a profound spiritual awakening and even a, an abiding one. And, you know, she, but she she's always kind of looking to examples of yogis and saints in India as being the real article. And And my feeling is that, you know, enlightenment is not an Indian thing. I mean, Indian culture is very familiar with it, just as Eskimos have lots of words for snow, but it's really a universal thing. And there's no reason why somebody in a suit and tie, uh, you know, or working in a in a business or something shouldn't actually be in as just as legitimately enlightened a state of consciousness as some guy who has all the trappings of Indian spirituality. Um, I mean, w- would you agree with that? And have you met people in the West that you feel are just as, is significantly uh, enlightened to use a, a word I don't like to use as people in the east that you've met?
1: Well you know if we if you know it all pivots on the definition of this word enlightened, but if we go back to the word I prefer spiritual maturity, Good. then uh, spiritual maturity, yes, definitely I've definitely uh, you know, I would say there's a pretty even split there. Yeah. You know, there are people in our culture who I think are very, very far along. Uh, I remember having a, you know, because of doing interviews all the time for the Huxley book and uh, the Houston Smith book, you know, I've had long conversations with Deepak Chopra and. Uh, Andrew Harvey, and Pico Iyer and Ram Das and uh, Stanislav Grof, and Joan Halifax, Roshi, and, and um, y- you know, my hat's off to all of them. I, I mean, I see profound insight that uh, is, in several of those cases, in mo- in most of those cases, the equal of anything I've seen in India, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, so I, I think you're absolutely right that uh, the people that are hungriest for it, you know, the hungriest for the growth, find their way to the growth. Or And it isn't only hunger, it can be, you know, a path of beauty. Uh, because I teach at an art college, I'm constantly meeting artists in their 40s and 50s, and I'll hear them talking about, in 60s and 70s and 20s, and they're talking about their artwork, and as they start talking about it, and their experiences that are triggered through through art, I think, wow, in a different idiom. Where you know you're talking about the spiritual path, mm-hmm. that you know you're, the 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 beauty of work and the aesthetic interest that you find in art has led you into the infinite, and mm-hmm. you know you've gone through that door that romanticism postulated, and uh, nice. whether the art is romantic or not, and. So I, I totally agree with you. I think this, this spiritual maturity yeah. is everywhere.
0: Yeah, and not only East and West, but South. I mean, if you look at Afri- certain African cultures or <laughs> South American cultures or whatever, you're going to find it there too.
1: Yeah, Australian um, Aborigines have a really amazing yeah. spiritual tradition.
0: And But somehow um, for me, I, and maybe you can divest me of this notion or maybe not, but somehow for me when I speak of spiritual maturity or spiritual de- development, I, I have the notion that it doesn't just mean that you're sort of a really sensitive um, integrated person, but there there must be some kind of tapping into or connection with that u- with universal awareness, which you know transcends all persons and cultures that 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 is sort of the the litmus test of of spiritual development that somehow that dimension has been um, you know brought to awareness. Uh, and then uh, and hopefully has begun to impact the the expressed aspects of your life. Are we on the same page with that?
1: I think to some extent. You know, uh, Beethoven often talked about his experiences of the infinite and the eternal. Mm -hmm. And uh, he could be a jerk on other occasions. And, uh, you know, I I tend to see uh, spiritual maturity as something beyond simply that experience of the transcendent. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I, I think it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. But no, I agree. That's what I've been
0: saying. That it's certainly yeah, much because you can yeah. be a jerk and have the transcendent. But, That's right. But uh, and it, but you know, if we think of the whole package, two hundred percent of you know, absolute and relative development. Um, would you? But would you, in your lexicon, would you say a person can be really spiritually developed and yet not have that transcendent dimension? I would. Would you?
1: I would, and and I say that because I've met people who are profoundly compassionate toward others and not mm-hmm. to feed their ego they have a profound compassion and out here in the world of physical being that is very valuable uh you know we live in a world of other beings and other people and like i said before they're just as sacred they're not sacred light they're just as sacred they are the infinite the absolute in my way of thinking and experience they are expressing itself and moving around, mm-hmm. and uh, and so to to and so that compassion I see is a more critical piece. Mm-hmm. I would see transcendence of ego and compassion as more uh, as better rulers of spiritual maturity than the mm-hmm. experience, uh, you know, that inner experience of the mm-hmm. eternal. You know, that's my two cents. Like, uh, let me finish a thought mm-hmm. uh, in Hinduism in the sect of the goddess worshippers, the shaktas, mm-hmm. then, uh, you know, they believe that the world is a, is a conjoining of male and female energy at every level, so they're tantrics. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, a healthy life is the conjoining of male and female energies inside of your body, and your chakras, and in your relationships, and, and in every level of nature. And that the physical world is feminine, that its charge at every level is feminine, mm-hmm. and that the absolute, the Brahman uh, in Hindu traditions, is a masculine energy, mm-hmm. is masculine. And so the physical world, you know, prakriti, which is a, a, a feminine noun, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure you've heard that word, prakriti, nature, sure. yes. is mother nature, it's it's a feminine charge. And the and shakti is another uh, feminine noun, and so shakti is the energy of God. Mm -hmm. And so Brahman is God in God's own being, and that's masculine. But shakti is God alive and moving and awake, and their viewpoint is, okay, I can use that, but the flat God laying there, I can't really use it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want the lively shakti one. And so that's what makes them goddess uh, worshippers and goddess devotees. They're, they're not denigrating the Brahman. They're not denigrating the Eternal uh, in its pure form. They happen to like the Eternal when it's moving around. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think that since we live in a world of beings, that has come to be the yardsticks uh, for measuring growth that I, that I tend to prefer.
0: At least it's a yardstick that you can see. You know, and 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 measure because it's more manifest. It's it's more uh, obvious. Um, you know that Upanishad where it talks about two birds sitting on the self same tree, and you know one partakes of the fruit and the other doesn't. And I forget which Upanishad that is, but it's it's said to represent uh, you know the absolute, and the relative, the the, witness, the silent witness. Uh, they're friends, but one eats the fruit and is more active, and the other just sort of sits there. Um, so I think that's what it's meant to represent, uh, and, and I, so, so I guess the question I was getting at is, you know, a person can, and and people who have awakenings generally, most of the people I interview, or a lot of people you you hear these days, speak of, uh, you know, really shattering the sense of being confined by a, an individual ego, and perhaps even not even being able to detect detect one anymore. But you know, even though they might have likes and dislikes and you know, and so on and so forth. They say they they insist that there's really no one home, and that what they are, in more predominantly, if not entirely, is is sort of an impersonal vastness. And um, so, I guess what I was getting at is whether, you know, perhaps a person who is very kind and compassionate and loving, and so on and so forth, th- those might be just uh, you know re- very laudable relative qualities which are highly developed in them, but uh if, if, but unless there's the dimension of the you know the un, the unmanifest which is like the substratum of existence then then by by definition it's it's a highly developed human state maybe a self actualized state as maslow would define it but it doesn't necessarily fit the the term enlightenment you know
1: yeah yeah no i can go with that i mean i think if you're kind of sitting in this you know, marinating in your vastness <laughs> 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 then uh then you know there's some ego there is what I would say. I mean uh could be uh, you know uh, that's the place that uh, I, I suppose you that's you think way- it's
0: just sort of a self gratifying kind of thing?
1: Yeah. You know, I mean you're 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 in a sort of a tape loop of bliss and that's very enjoyable, but if there's no ego out in there then uh some part of you, some part of uh, that you know if you're really claiming to have transcended your individuality mm-hmm. i think then uh, there would be a uh, you know think of the dalai lama someone who is very concerned about the uh the problems of his people and the problems in the world and mm-hmm. trying to build bridges of compassion between people and uh, you know it's very pleasant on a sunny day to wake up in the morning and sit and uh, have a cup of tea and look out at the mountains and, you know, again, sort of marinate in that Cape yeah. bliss. But but um, we can't use it, you know. We need to yeah. have you come out and help. And uh, yeah. and so, you know, I, that's why I tend to think when you see the compassion manifesting, uh, even if it's just, you know, like Jishanti or Gangaji wanting to share a beautiful experience they're having with yeah. other people, in, teaching is an impetus, right? Mm-hmm. To, sure, to it's share. a way of serving. It's but like, a way take, of serving.
0: take Mother Teresa for instance. You know, towards the end of her life, she admitted that she really, uh, you know, was assailed by doubts and didn't have a whole lot of profound subjective experience. You know, but then look at her life. You know, uh, unbelievable. So there must have been something really profound happening inside to have given expression to such a life. Um, so maybe she was just so humble that she didn't recognize it, and maybe she was very much tapped into you know universal awareness and you know the the divine consciousness which wants to in, infuse itself into into the world, and she was a profound, powerful channel for that. I'm just. Uh, I think you're. I think you're exactly thinking right. aloud here. I, you know, it may have just been her humility that caused her to um, feel like she was a chump.
1: <laughs> I think. I think that's true. I mean, I I feel like a lot of times I will. Uh, because when Ken Rinpoche, this Tibetan Lama that you were talking about, the Abbot of the Panchen Lama's monastery, when he first started coming to uh, New England to give teachings, he gave a teaching, and I took a bunch of students of mine there 20 years ago, and um, he really was struggling with his English, and he said he was from Ladakh, and I thought, well, he might know Hindi, and I came up to him afterwards and talked to him in Hindi, you know, asked him how he was doing, and where he was staying, and uh, we kind of glommed onto each other because there aren't a lot of people to speak to in Hindi and in Maine. And, uh, and uh, so, you know, we were talking and I ended up uh, teaching with him. And uh, people will come to him a lot, you know. And, uh, and, you know, you've seen this kind of experience when you were around Marishi. Sometimes people will come with him and they feel like uh, because he's making eye contact and they can see what he is, they feel like he's looking into their soul and he's judging them and it's really them judging themselves mm. and they'll start crying you know they'll have this big release and uh feel like they need to apologize for all the mistakes that they've made and and there's something there's something very beautiful about it but then other people will come sometime and uh oh i'm you know i'm not very far along the path and uh I'm doing my best, and um, you know I'm, I'm good to my family, and uh, and they're sort of apologizing for not being very far along, and I can tell by the way he's treating them that oh no, he's he's really recognizing some stages of development in them that they themselves really aren't aren't noticing. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's like um, I think it was Emerson that said uh, it was something like this, like. Uh, Emerson was saying he, he wasn't very far along in his growth or something, mm-hmm. and and one of the other transcendentalists said, uh, "What you are is shouting so loud I can't hear what you're saying." <laughs> you know, that's good. And and I really like that. You know, yeah. that every now and then I think people are something, un, you know, colossally beautiful, mm-hmm. and uh, and they're not really honoring how far their their growth is. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, how, much of spiritual maturity they've accumulated.
0: And as Jesus put it, you shall know them by their fruits.
1: Exactly, exactly, you know, that's where it's got to get up on legs and walk around, and then then we find out.
0: Hmm. (laughs) Good. Well, that's just about as good a place to conclude as any. I
1: think so too.
0: Yeah, I've kept you up way past your bedtime. Uh,
1: It's great to see you, Rick.
0: Yeah, good to see you, Dana. (laughs)
1: This is the longest that we've talked in years and years and years. So how wonderful! Probably
0: the longest we've ever talked.
1: You know? oh, no, no, I mean, no. I was
0: always kind of blowing <laughs> into Danbury and in a snowstorm and teaching, you know, thirty people, and while well, you were having a party in the next room, and then racing back down to, to Fairfield, and
1: some of those nights. But I also, remember sitting up till about three o'clock in the morning, figuring out how we were going to change the whole world. You oh, know? good! It Was all going to happen, and uh, and that that's you know, I celebrate those days. Yeah,
0: joy. <laughs> Well, let's stay in touch. Um, I'll, I'll conclude this uh, this interview by just um, reminding people that you've been watching or listening to Buddha at the Gas Pump, and uh, there are a number of places where you can watch or listen to this, so if you want the mothership, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and there you'll find all of them archived as well as uh, links to. YouTube and Facebook and a podcast and, you know, other ways in which you can, and a chat group and and so on. And in fact, uh, speaking of chat groups, Dana's, um, I'll have Dana's interview up in a day or two, and uh, there'll be a place where you can make comments, and uh, if you have a question for Dana, I'll alert him to the fact that you've posted a question, and and if he has the time, he'll come in and, and answer it.
1: And if you have an answer for Dana, yeah then <laughs> that, you can add that too. That too. Uh.
0: So great. Right, to, thank you and we'll uh, see you next week.